0: So last week we were in Revelation, uh, first part of Revelation chapter 6, and the first of the four seals were opened, right? You remember that the scroll had seals all over it, there were seven seals, and as he's breaking each seal, and the first four seals that are broken, a different horse with a different rider comes and brings one that would conquer, that we talked about deception, we talked about war coming, or devastation, we talked about famine, and then at the end there was death, okay? And so... Those four seals are coming now. Don't even though we stop there, doesn't mean we uh, that those aren't important or still going here. Okay, we we stop there just because of convenience and time. But they would have been reading this letter. The seals that come after just follow right after. And so tonight we're going to cover seals five and six. And what we need to remember is this book was written to a group of Christians that we're dealing with what many Christians throughout history have dealt with that we don't. And that's persecution. I mean, this is written to a group of people that proclaiming Jesus boldly could cost them their freedom or their life. We don't have that. And so we have to keep that in mind that we are unique in the history of the world living in a society where it's expected to have freedom to proclaim Christ. It's been going on since Christ came, right? Persecution's been happening. Who was the first big-time persecutor? Saul, who became Paul, right? He was leading the charge. Then Paul was persecuted. When you get even to the 200s, 202, 203 AD, the persecution was so bad back then that... Uh, Jude, a guy named Jude, not the Jude from the Bible, but a different Jude, wrote that he said that the end times had to be really near in his generation because there's no way persecution could get worse. I mean, people dealing with that on a regular basis. Eusebius is a guy that wrote a history of the church, and he has more accounts of martyrs than we have time for the rest of tonight. I'm talking not like till six forty-five. I'm talking the rest of the night to proclaim. Okay, it just. Time after time after time, it's happening. It's even happening currently. Uh, There's a website called Voice of the Martyrs. You can put that in Google, Voice of the Martyrs, and go to there. I've mentioned it before. But they tell stories, especially what's happening in China right now. Um, On June 29th of last year, a pastor was serving a one-year sentence. They announced for engaging in illegal activities. Those activities were just preaching the gospel. His family was not informed when he was transferred to a higher security prison with more uh, difficult punishment. His wife and five other believers were arrested uh, on June 14th with him and on June 29th he was transferred to a new labor center in China. The wife got to serve out her time at home because she had kids, but he was sent to a work camp. These are some things he was forced to do. This is going on in July of last year he uh, was forced to squat if he wanted to talk to police he was forced to work 18 hour days 6am to midnight some prisoners there had contracted diseases 70 people slept in a small room together, often on top of each other in China on July 3rd of last year 8 Christians were arrested when a house church was raided, 6 of the 8 are detained in an undisclosed location on July 5th, a house church was raided and the Christians were accused of disturbing the social order. On July 13th, 32 Christians were arrested at a youth camp, interrogated, threatened, and beaten. On June 26th, 16 homes belonging to Christians were burned to the ground in Pakistan and 60 homes were damaged. And I could go on and on and on. I got an email this week from Ms. Jean Ingram who was in our 4 o'clock Bible study talking about a pastor that is at the verge of being executed for his faith. And what we have to remember is Revelation is written to people dealing with those kind of situations. And what Revelation answers is the question, what holds Christians fast to the gospel in the face of persecution? What is it that emboldens them to keep talking about Jesus when their life is on the line? How do they hold up under that intense pressure? Ultimately, we know it's God. Ultimately, we know it's the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit uses the promises as God has made. Christians believe it is worse to deny Christ than to even lose their life. So, Revelation 6 is a set of God's promises. A revelation in total is a picture of God's promises. And what it tells us is that we can be assured that our Heavenly Father is coming for us. That's what the whole point of Revelation is that God is coming. We need to be assured that God's promises so that our faith in God will be as certain as that of believers who have given their life. Like one that Eusebius writes about named Apollonia. Her persecutors tried to get her to deny Christ and she refused and they broke out her teeth individually giving her the opportunity in between to deny it. And she never recanted. When she held fast, they gave up and they just burned her alive. Now, God's not only made promises, He's disclosed His plan, and that's Revelation as well. It's not a kind of a blueprint. You know, right now the renovation's happening over there, and the, one of the things that I, I see when I, when I uh, see the guys around and they're, they're working is they've got blueprints with them all the time. They're, they're looking all the time to see what it, they have to do exactly to get to the end product. Well, Revelation is not that kind of document. But what it is, is it gives us an overall picture of what it's going to be like so that we can trust in the Lord. We can believe that God has a trustworthy plan to deal with evil and pain. That He will be just, that He will be merciful, that no matter what happens, He will come for us. We need to be assured of that so that we can be like Dionysia, who was a mother of many children, but yet did not love them above the Lord and died by the sword. God's disclosure of His plan to judge evil and save His people frees us to trust Him no matter what happens. Revelation chapter 6 through 16 liberates the people of God to trust Him regardless of the cost because they show us that God is going to judge the wicked and save the righteous. These chapters enable bold, radical faithfulness to God because they show how things will turn out in the end. The disclosure of His plan assures us that we can trust Him no matter what happens. If the earth shakes and the buildings fall on us, if the laws change and we're persecuted for the Word of God, if we face powerful temptations to give into evil, these chapters show us that God will deliver His people from every calamity. He will avenge every injustice to the faithful ones. And the temptations to do evil are Satan's attempt to make war on the saints. So let's look at Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 17. It says, When He opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the people slaughtered because of God's Word and the testimony they had. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the One who is holy and true, how long until You judge and avenge our blood from those who live on the earth? So a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow slaves and their brothers who were going to be killed just as they had been. Then I saw him open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The entire moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky separated like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was moved from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the military commanders, the rich, the powerful, every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks and they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb because the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? So here's what happens. See, the first four seals are things being sent from heaven to earth. Seals 5 and 6 take us back to heaven and then back to earth. Okay? And so John, it seems, is still in this vision. He's still seeing worships happen. The seals are being opened and it's going to earth. And then the fifth seal is open. And what, are they, what does he see when the fifth seal is open? What does he see? Huh? Souls, where are they? They're under the altar of the Lord in heaven. And who are these souls? They're the... The ones that have been killed for their faith. The martyrs for their faith. Okay, Now there's some discussion about what that means and if everyone's kind of wrapped up in that under the understanding of Jesus uh, dying for our sins and so in believing in Him, we are a witness for Him, a martyr for Him. I think that this particular passage is speaking of those who have made the ultimate sacrifice of their life for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Things that have happened since the first A few years after Jesus ascended to the Father, until this very day. I mean, there is a likelihood that someone died today for their faith in Jesus, somewhere in the world. And what is happening here is they're reminding them of that happened. When the seal is opened, there is an altar of souls who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they bore. And these are the people who have died for their faithfulness to the gospel. You remember in uh, Revelation chapter 2 in the the letter to Smyrna, if you don't remember I'll remind you real quick, alright? In the letter to Smyrna he says that they need to be faithful unto death. And he's telling these people, be faithful unto death, and then he's going to give them an image or a picture to encourage them, of these souls that have done exactly that, and saying you need to understand that this could happen. Here's the first thing that I want us to see, and this is from the souls under the altar. We must come to the point in our life where what matters to us most is faithfulness to God. What matters to us most is faithfulness to God. Faithfulness to the Word of God and the Gospel must be more important to us than pleasure... It must be more important to us than leisure and more important than life itself. You realize that for most people on this earth, including people that call themselves believers of Jesus Christ, that faithfulness to God is not number one on their agenda. I mean, our world has all kinds of stuff that they give allegiance to or care about more than they should. Um, I, I, watched, I watched the football this weekend. Very interested. I didn't have a team that I liked really left. But I watched it, and uh, I don't know if you watched it. if there's a game with the Niners and the Giants, and uh, there was a guy named Kyle Williams. Does name Kyle Williams that fumbled uh, in overtime and basically cost the Niners the game. Okay. Well, people. He he has a Twitter account, and on Twitter you can say anything to anybody. You know, I've discovered people will say something to me just out of the blue. And I I don't know how they know me. If they know me, they just say something. They can do that. Well, people started flooding his Twitter account with death threats. And his dad, which interestingly enough, is the general manager for the Chicago White Sox, said, don't you think that we've gotten out of balance in our care about sports when that happens? And so, for us, I don't think anybody in here would go to that extreme. Okay? Okay? I mean, most of us in there have a pretty level-headed thing when it comes to something like that. I, I'm a guy that if my team loses, I can deal with it, especially because lately, 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 lately they've been losing a lot in a lot of different ways. I'll tell you this. Last night I was up here moving pews, and I got a text message with the halftime score. And my first thought was, I need to figure out a way to set it. When we're losing that badly, it doesn't even let me know. Alright? It just doesn't let me know. So, but here's the point of all that. We have to come to a point in our lives where the thing that is most important, what matters most, is God and faithfulness to Him. We must value faithfulness to God and His Word more than we value the ability to go on living our peaceful, happy lives. That's what it means to be faithful unto the death. Knowing that others who have done that have made it through into the presence of God can liberate us from any fear we have about what comes after death. Death's not the end. Um, I, I had the privilege, the reason I'm dressed up today is because I had the privilege of being a part of Brenda Vaughn's funeral this this morning. And uh, one of the guys that had known her for over 20 years in the grocery business shared his testimony as part of that. Guy named Barton, he goes to Parkway, and uh, Martin has a remarkable testimony. But he talked about a, a conversation he had with Brenda in the, some of her final weeks. And in her final weeks, he had this conversation with her. Uh, well, he came over to see her. It's actually last week. And as he sat down, he says, "I came over to say hello," and she said, "Before you have to say goodbye." Kind of finished the sentence for me. Martin says, yeah, but don't you look forward to the day when I can say hello to you again. And most of us in this room, if we ask that, we we know that. I mean, I, I, the the passage of Scripture I read at the graveside of days is a passage I read almost every graveside I do, which is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when he says, I don't want you to be ignorant about what's going to happen because I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. But what we have to understand is, is that this, knowing that, knowing that this life is not ultimate reality, ought to change the way we live this life. This life is not the ultimate reason for your existence. You exist for the glory of God. Live in a way that testifies to that. And in this passage, it gives the idea, die in a way, if called upon, that testifies to that. John sees the souls under the altar, and in verse 10 he tells us what they say. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now let's stop and think for just a minute so that we can feel the injustice that's been done to these martyrs. They did everything right, they were faithful to God. The reason they were killed was because of the Word of God and the witness they had borne. They are people who are rightly relating to God. They're loving God and they're loving people and they're killed by people who are doing wrong. They're murdered for fulfilling the two commandments that God gave us. Now think about this for a minute. They did nothing wrong and they lost their lives. I know people that flip out if McDonald's gets their order wrong. Right? I mean, how can they do that? Don't they know what they're doing? I didn't get what I deserved here. I I tell this story because we've gone past this, but Susan and I have been married about 12 days. We were in Fort Worth, Texas in our seminary luxurious 600 square foot seminary housing. Uh, Seminary housing was in a... a, uh, part of town that wasn't the best and so you had to drive a little ways to get anywhere that you wanted to get something to eat and one day it was time for lunch and it was like the first weekend we were down there she said why don't you just stop at kfc right down the road and get us something to eat so i did and i ordered exactly what she told me to order and i got home and we opened the bags and guess what Wrong order. Wrong order. My order was correct. My order is always correct. For <laughs> it's one of the things we had to get over the first few times in our relationship. But my order was always correct. Hers was never quite. And so I said, "It's all right, babe. You know, there's no need to drive back. But we've got what you know. We've got good food here to eat. Let's just eat what's here. And you know what I did? Drove I drove back, and I got. <laughs> and Susan didn't flip out, but you've seen that, right? People don't get what they deserve. And they go nuts. These people, these souls, lost their life for doing exactly what they're supposed to do. There is no wonder that they cry out, How long, O Lord, are you going to let this injustice last? One of the things that our judicial system tries to do is never to convict an innocent person. But when an innocent person is convicted and they know they're innocent, there's this thing within them that keeps on trying as hard as they can to figure out a way to prove they're innocent. They want justice done. But we're talking on a higher level here. And from underneath, people that are faithful to God, slain for the Word of God and for the witness they have borne, they are crying out, God, how long are you going to let this happen? In the Old Testament, you've got David crying out on a regular basis, God, how long will the wicked prosper and the faithful suffer? Standing today at a casket of a lady who did unbelievably good things for this church and for the sake of the kingdom of God, you say, Lord, how long am I going to have to talk about people whose lives are cut short by something like cancer? The cry from these people is, Lord, when are you going to set it right? These people were just doing what God called them to do, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. I mean, they were doing the most loving thing you can do. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do for someone is not leave them alone or not affirm them in their sin. It is to tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, One of the great ironies in life is that we have developed a culture that find so many ways to treat evil as good and good as evil. Some people agitate for wickedness. They are activists for God-despising, humanity-destroying, depression-causing activities, and they're viewed by our cultures as champions of virtue. Meanwhile, people who testify to God's truth those who seek to win others to embrace the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, experience the liberating freedom of living according to biblical morality, we're called unloving, negative, hate mongers who ought to be ashamed of ourselves. We have to constantly resist the slow creep of culture's conclusion that it is wrong to tell people the gospel, wrong to testify to God's truth. The culture not only is called good, evil, and evil, good, it's also succeeded in making that seem normal. The result is that if we're not careful, we will feel that it is the right thing to do is to keep our mouths shut about the gospel when we're around people that might be offended by it. Instead of proclaiming what we know to be true. We've got to soak our minds in the Bible so that we know the loving thing to do is to speak the Gospel, testify to the Word of God, no matter the consequences that may come in our lives. We have to tell people, even if it means they will repay our love by something as extreme as killing us, that Jesus is the way and that He cares. That's what happened to these souls under the altar. Because their love was repaid with hatred, they know that justice should be done. They want justice to be done so that God's name will be vindicated. So they call out for vengeance. Notice they're not taking it into their own hands, right? They're calling out for God to send vengeance. Our culture has probably convinced most of us that vengeance is an evil thing altogether. But that's not what the Bible says. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourself. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance of God is a good thing. And these souls under the altar are calling for God to do that work. The time for the outpouring hasn't come yet. In verse 11 we read, But they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. By the way, it says that they are under the altar and that just means that they've been protected from any further thing happening. They are under God's care. And they're under God's care. They're given a white robe. What does the white robe symbolize? Purity. Purity, Cleanness. They've been avenged. Or not avenged, but they've been justified. The verse states that the number of martyrs that has to be completed has not yet been completed. So let me ask you a question. Who's going to determine the number? Yeah. God. Not Satan, not us, not a dictator in the Middle East. God's got that number. Now, why would God have appointed a certain number of people to be martyred for their faith? I mean, why would He let that happen? Why why would He say that is acceptable and what needs to happen? There is this sense that the reason we ask that question is because we value this life so much. Now, I'm not saying that life is to be valued. We just had the sanctity of human life, and I believe in that. But what I'm saying is, we as believers value our earthly life over our heavenly future. The question might be, why does God let us stay here for so long? I mean, in that reality, I mean, where is suffering going to be? Here. Where's illness going to be? Here. What's going to happen when we get through here? Uh, it's gonna be good, right? I mean, it's gonna be like real good, like undis- indescribably good. And yet we go, well, why would he take me so soon? Well, my question is just, why is he making me live here so long? where's Where's the mercy in that? Now, you have to be careful saying those kind of things if you don't want to exit the earth. but you know in romans nine twenty three Paul says that it, he might but he's delayed. So that he might make known the riches of his glory, on the vessels of mercy for the glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but of the Gentiles, in other words, why he allows his wrath to continue. So that his mercy will be even greater because of the number that will be saved. Right. And and there's this sense that, that there is this testimony, the greatest testimony anyone can give to the fact that they value Christ over all things is when they give their life. And the way that that spreads the gospel. Now the reason that He's delayed in leaving us here on this earth, I can give you the answer. Okay, It's because He wishes none to be lost. And it's our job, it's our task to take the gospel to people who are lost. And so the reason He is delayed is because He is patient, not wishing anyone would perish. And it was our job to be a part of that. Well, you know, the idea is that we live in a broken, fallen world where Satan has been given on a short leash some ability to maneuver around and we live in a place that is the product of our own sinfulness. And so that's the reality. And as we, as the gospel bearing light in this society, we ought to be people who are carrying it to others. Uh, And we have to realize... This scene is not just for those people in Smyrna that might have to give their life. And it's not just for a pastor right now in the Philippines who is preaching with the reality that someone could barge in his door any moment and take him to prison. It is written for all of us to live our lives in a way that if our life is demanded from us, then we would willingly give it for the gospel. It's to prepare us for that soaking ourselves in the Bible, clinging to its promises, living in a world that the Bible describes not in line with the world that we live in currently. We ought to be living our lives daily as if this could be the last moment. Not just because of martyrdom, but just for the general sense that it could be our last. We're not promised tomorrow. And we need to live each day with full abandon to the Lord. Somebody has written that we need to read the Bible like it will be our last day to do it. To pray like we won't wake up tomorrow. To preach or speak to people like you'll never get another chance. To love your spouse as if this were the last day you could do that. To hold your kids or your grandkids teaching them the faith like this is it. The truth is bloody. And the book of Revelation is not going to get less violent and extreme from this point forward. But so is reality. Sometimes as American we have sanitized our lives so much that we don't realize that most of the rest of the world still lives in a messy, dirty, violent, bloody world. If we get a drop of blood anywhere in our house, we got three cleaners to take care of. Right? We got some Clorox and some Lysol and some Windex makes an antibacterial thing now for your counters. I mean, we've got cleaners everywhere. We we just have sanitized our lives. We've sanitized our faith lives. We have we have sanitized our lives to the point that we think that the way that we do church, I mean, without any worry, without any kind of disruption, is normal. And it's just not. The history of the world is much more like Revelation than it is like Goodlettsville. It's soaked. History is soaked in the blood of martyrs who have died in the past. It's soaked with the blood of some that are suffering right now and it's soaked in the blood of those who will one day soon stand courageously and seal their confession of faith with their own life. In fact, not long ago, three Nigerian pastors were beheaded by Muslims. One of the pastors was commanded to embrace Islam and when he was given the opportunity, instead of embracing Islam, he began to proclaim the gospel and they beheaded him. There was a pastor preaching at one of their funerals. Now think about this for a minute. You just had three pastors killed for preaching the gospel. What do you think the last thing most people would run to do is? Preach the gospel. So what do they do? They have a funeral where they preach the gospel. Now that is just a foreign concept to us that preaching the gospel at a funeral could be a dangerous and illegal activity. I mean, think about today at that funeral where I was preaching about a great church member. There was no question in my mind that anybody might break into that place and arrest me or kill me for doing that. But this guy did. Three of his cohorts are killed. It would be like if three pastors in Goodlitzville were killed and there was a warning put out, you preach the gospel in Goodlitzville, you are going to die. And this guy gets up and says, I don't care. And when he preached at that funeral, imagine this funeral sermon. His funeral sermon was, how many of you are prepared today to die for Christ like these men? We need to live our lives as if there's something worth dying for. Put in our minds that God, Christ, the Bible, the truths of the faith, these things are worth more to me than life. Live Life without these things is not worth living. That's what the voices from underneath the altar are proclaiming. Live your life in a way that you are helping to vindicate the name of Jesus and that you're willing to give your life for Him so that you will honor our memory as you live. Another pastor wrote this. I would rather have my life taken from me than deny... Christ. I have a family, but I know that God will protect and provide for my widowed wife and my orphaned children. He is God, not my persecutors. I love my family and will serve them as long as there is breath in my chest, but all the while I'll teach them Psalm 63.3. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. So we must Come to a place where the faithfulness to God is the most important thing. Here's the second and final thing. We must realize that all earthly gains will fail us in the end. All earthly gains will fail us. Look at what happens in chapter six, verse twelve through seventeen. Bad stuff happens. Right? Sun goes black, that can't be fun. Moon turns to blood. Now, not literally, right? It doesn't start dripping, but it blood red. Stars fall. Don't you love that description? Like unripe fruit when the wind comes. The sky rolled up. The mountains and the islands are removed. People try to hide from the wrath of God. Now, look, this is another place. We don't need to get bogged up. In, well, what do you mean the sky is rolled up? What will that actually look like? That, the, that's not the point. The point is bad stuff is happening. These cosmic signs accompany the opening of the sixth scroll are similar to what comes in Matthew twenty four twenty nine, and the next verse in Matthew twenty four thirty describes the coming of the Son of Man. So with the opening of the sixth seal it means that almost immediately Jesus is getting ready to come back. The sky vanished like a scroll is being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed. Dramatic alterations in the order of things declare the end is approaching. God no doubt stages this as a might, a display of His might to provoke repentance. And instead of repentance, rather than repent, people hide. Right? Think they can escape it. Verse 15 and 17. Notice this. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich. The significant, the dignified, and the proud. But they have nothing to stand against God. And everyone, in case we missed anybody, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks, calling basically, kill me now so I don't have to sit through this. You notice how this manifestation of the wrath of God and the lamp levels everybody out? The reaction of the kings and the slaves are exactly the same. They all run to hide. Look how the rich and the powerful are no better than merely free. Status doesn't matter. It says the kings run. Human greatness doesn't matter. It says the great ones run. It says the army doesn't matter. The generals run. It says money doesn't matter. The rich run. It tells us that influence doesn't matter. The powerful run. Nothing matters when you get to the end before an almighty God. They're all looking for a place to hide, but there's no place to hide. And what we learn here, and if you you want to write anything else down on that page, write this. Everything people sell their souls to gain fails them when the great day comes. Everything people sell their souls to gain fails them when the great day comes. Politicians sacrifice their integrity to get elected, but their office won't help them when Jesus comes. The rich trade life for money. The powerful trade life for, or uh, loving relationships for influence. People everywhere prefer enhancing their image to building their character. But when God knocks the mountains off their roots and yanks the earth's surface flat, when He rolls up the scroll of the sky, nothing that people forsook Him to gain will protect them from His wrath. There's only one shelter from the wrath of God the shelter of His Son, Jesus Christ. Only those, and what this shows us is, only those who believe that Jesus died to pay the penalty for their sins, that He rose to conquer sin and death, only those who trust Jesus will be sheltered by Him on that day. Interestingly, the gospel is a leveler of humanity in the same way God's at this. It doesn't matter how much money you have or how powerful you are or how influential. The gospel declares, only Jesus saves. And nothing else can bring you closer to God. Money doesn't put you closer to God. Power doesn't. Influence doesn't. Greatness doesn't. Freedom doesn't. Only Jesus saves. Here's the interesting thing about the way this chapter bookends on these two things. The fifth seal reminds us that that our lives have to get to a point where the only thing that matters is Jesus. Because when, as seal six shows us, The wrath of God descends. The only thing that matters in your life is Jesus. You see that? We need to get to a place where we realize that the only thing worth anything in our lives is Jesus. Because in the end, the only thing worth anything in our lives is Jesus. That's what 5 and 6 show us. Everything else we put our hope in is a false hope.